Today, I want to focus on arguably the most pernicious force in the economy right now, and that's inflation. During tumultuous periods like we're in now, it becomes all too easy to point fingers. In this case, pointing fingers at the Fed for being behind the inflation ball. Inflation is certainly running hot. The consumer price index has held above 5% for more than six consecutive months, with the most recent readings coming in over 8%. And further shutdowns in China due to COVID have only further disrupted supply chains, and a tight labor market in the U.S. make it pretty easy to jump on the hard landing bandwagon. There's certainly a lot to be concerned about. But I'd also argue there's a lot of nuance required when assessing the true recessionary probabilities. And a lot of that comes down to the true impact of inflation on the consumer. I've been much more sanguine on the consumer than many other strategists. And up until now, we're seeing that optimism play out in earnings reports and spending on goods and services. But what does that look like 12 months down the road, even six months down the road? To help answer that question, I've asked Jason Ritchie, co-portfolio manager at Cougar Global Investments, to join us again and dive deeper into the impact of inflation, the impact on the consumer, and how ultimately we can position from an investment standpoint. This is Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors. I'm your host, Matt Orton. Join me and my colleagues as we discuss the latest trends and developments driving the markets. Visit us at marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional episodes and insights. So Jason, thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's great to speak with you again. So why don't we just start with a quick take on inflation and how you think the overall environment has changed over the past year? Well, you know, I think you uh, covered it quite well and alluded to it in your intro. There's certainly plenty of blame to go around. And I think you're right. The Fed is going to take the brunt of it, which is probably not fair. But I think that's just the way it is in today's world. You know, I do find it very intriguing that Fed Chair Jay Powell, the way he opened his last press conference in early May by saying that he wanted to speak directly to the American people, And then he went on to say that inflation is too high. And then he said that the Fed understands the hardship that it's causing. Now, that approach was was really unusual. There's there's no question about that. Usually what he does is he has the same exact initial wording about being strongly committed to achieving monetary policy goals or something something similar. Now, he did. If you go back and look, he did have a one liner in March's press conference about the difficulties in Ukraine. But Again, he usually opens with this sort of fairly standard and fairly generic statement. It was, it was almost as if he was openly accepting the situation that he finds himself in, meaning he's, he's sort of stuck taking all of the blame that's going to be thrown his way. And it sure feels like he's in this impossible situation. Either the economy is going to slow too much into a recession or grocery prices will stay too high. It, it's pretty hard to argue that uh, will achieve some sort of perfect interest rate equilibrium on the first try. That's, that's not usually how markets work. Now, it's a little bit different when you look at things from a fundamental point of view, but from a macro point of view, the economy is not growing as fast as, as we hoped just a few months ago. And outside of a very strong and, and probably overheated labor market at this point, there are some peaking or, or even slowing data points. Yeah, I think that that's a good point to make. And, you know, when we look from the economy, sometimes throughout this entire pandemic, one could argue that there's there's been somewhat of a disconnect between the economy and what's happening in the corporate world. 
But I think it's helpful to look at what's happening in the corporate world as well when looking at where we might go with respect to the economy. And so I want to touch on earnings because as of last week, we've got you know 80 plus percent of the S&P 500 reporting earnings and just about 80 percent of the companies that have reported have beat their expectations. So it's been a strong quarter relative to expectations. Revisions for both US and European companies are back into positive territory. You could say guidance has been a little bit suboptimal, but margins are still good above pre-pandemic levels. So I want to get your thoughts in terms of how markets can can recover from where we are right now, given this strong corporate earnings backdrop, and if that really matters going forward, given what's happening with inflation. Yeah, that's right. Um, revenues were fine also, too, if you want to throw that in. And, and despite everyone's fears of a slowdown, you know, there wasn't a lot to pick on other than perhaps the discretionary sector didn't didn't really have a great quarter but from a current earnings point of view that you know that is one of those bullish data points if you're searching for one of course bears have latched on to the future guidance piece i think you're starting to see some of those future earnings estimates you know flatten perhaps even come down a bit uh, by the way, it's, it's really the same argument from a top-down perspective, too, in that the consumer drives the economy, as we all know. So what economists do is they split consumer spending into durable goods spending versus services spending. And economists were pretty quick to latch on to the idea coming out of the pandemic because you could see it in the data. Most of us suffered lockdowns of some sort. We couldn't spend money on a night out. You know, we were flush with savings from government checks. So we remodeled the house and we bought new appliances, and that was the good spending side of the equation. And then the argument was that you know, we as consumers, we would eventually switch from spending on goods to spending on services as the economy reopened. And we're starting to see that in the data, but there is some debate on, on the extent to which that's going to happen going forward from here. So you know, what I mean is you, you can't really make up for a lost haircut. You can't make up for a lost restaurant visit. So we might not see that overspend on services the way that we saw on goods. So if durable spending does go down, since you know we all have new dishwashers, but services only makes it back up to trend or close to trend, since you know we go back to eating out once a week, which is what we've always done, then what you end up with is slower overall GDP growth. And, and I think from that, you'd see lower future earnings estimates from individual companies as well, which I think is, is you know, there's some element of that in terms of what equity markets are pricing in lately. And do you think equity markets might be a little bit too bearish, or do you think it's, it's, it's fair where we are given the level of uncertainty? So yeah, I would say it's a bearish environment. There's no question. It's not overly bearish, though. There's a, you know there's a lot of market indicators show this is a fairly orderly market decline. Uh, you know at least so far. Now we know markets can't go up endlessly. So when you have a three-year annualized return of of plus 25 or, or plus 26 percent or whatever it was at the end of of 2021, there's clearly a lot of positivity priced in. We know it was the fastest and sharpest rebound going to going back to 1950. Lots of rationale for the run that we had, but I don't think it was overly heroic to think that you know, we could have some type of pause or some type of pullback in equity markets on the assumption that you know, we'd have less stimulus and the Fed wouldn't be as helpful as it, as it has been. But the biggest problem for investors in the current environment is we don't have a lot of comparisons. Right? So two of the biggest pullbacks in the last number of years was the pandemic, where there was a sharp rebound after a month, and then you have to go back to the fourth quarter of 2018 where there was a sharp drawdown, and then there was another sharp rebound, and that took about four months. Where we sit today, we've, we've effectively been in drawdown mode the whole year, 
And so naturally, you're starting to hear comparisons going back to 2008, which I don't think that's fair, not, not, not yet at least. So I think the bottom line is we have likely a bit more to go on the downside for equities if we're either in a recession or if we're headed, headed towards one. But if a recession can be pushed out, then this is really a normal part of market activity. It's just that we haven't had a lot of normal market activity in the last 15 years. So, And I know there's a lot of ifs when you make these type of statements, but if inflation can turn or, or if the Fed can dial things down a little bit, or if we get any help on the Russia front, and by the way, I would throw in China in that, if we don't get a surprise out of China, then I think maybe markets can get closer to even, but I think it's hard to, hard to see how we get in the green by the end of the year. No, I think those are all very valid points and, and kind of bringing it back to, to this idea of inflation that I think comes through what you were talking about. And the consumer earlier, you know, you mentioned that we're seeing services spending pick up. It's above pre-pandemic levels finally. But the question is around whether or not it can continue to accelerate. We've seen retail sales hold up incredibly well too. But we're now starting to see revolving credit start to rise. And like you pointed out, there's only so much stuff we can we can buy. So can we continue to count on the consumer to be a bright spot in the economy? Uh, nominally, yes, I agree. The consumer is in a great spot for now, at least. If you switch your lens to real spending, meaning spending after you take into account inflation, I think it's a little bit less clear. There are some categories that are taking some time to come back. You look at movies or hotels, you know, we're still 10% or so under the daily airline passenger numbers if you looked at TSA data, for example. So yeah, the consumer is switching from spending on things to spending on travel and experience, largely on the back of all the excess built-up savings. And we know that there's excess built-up savings because we can measure the savings rate. And the savings rate has been falling. It's a little bit below pre-pandemic levels at this point. And so the question now becomes, how quickly are we spending down that accumulated savings? So now, do I think the consumer is safer for another 9 or 12 months? Uh, probably yes, especially if you know none of us go out to restaurants any extra to make up for lost time, like I mentioned earlier. So if services spending gets back to its trend line, I think that could elongate that spend down of the accumulated savings, which means we're, we're not spending that extra that we have saved up. Now, the other side of the equation is debt. Right Now, economists will tell you that the consumer is delevered, Official measures of debt-to-household income show that that is true, that is the case, that consumers are in a much better place today. However, you know, if interest rates continue to rise, then that cushion would fall pretty quickly. And all of that consumer, and keep in mind, all of that consumer deleveraging that took place since the 2008 financial crisis came during a falling interest rate environment. We're in a very different interest rate environment today. Right. And so... You know, building on that too, we can't really talk about the consumer without hitting on housing, which also is very impacted by interest rates. And you're being based in Canada, I'm based in Florida. I think we we've seen ground zero for some of the biggest home price increases. So if you've got the combination of the Fed hiking, interest rates increasing, along with strong price appreciation, is pushing affordability to the worst levels that we've really seen since the housing crisis. Now, I guess the most obvious question to ask is, is whether that coupling of higher rates and rising prices will impact home buyers and or home builders in the near to intermediate term. And could there maybe be some beneficiaries from that inflation that we're seeing in the housing market? Yeah, I think you've highlighted a risk for sure. If you're looking for one, this is one of those areas that I do worry about. Affordability is bad because mortgage rates are at 13-year highs. And we haven't quite doubled 
the 30-year mortgage rate in the U.S. at least, but it's pretty close, and we did that in less than a year. Now, if you look at home prices year over year, they're still rising, but I think that's, you know, that's pretty certain to slow over the next six months. It's actually a bit interesting. There's been a trend for economists to look at month-over-month data because of the year-over-year headline data that we all read about in the newspapers has been so corrupted for, for a couple of years now by the pandemic and interest rates and stimulus of all sorts, which it's really a trade-off, right? Because we always talk about looking at smoothed averages rather than looking at any individual data point to try to identify trends. Uh, and, but this is just sort of where we're at right now. So if you, if you go back and look at, at housing price data month to month, prices look to be close to peaking. And we know that the housing market punches above its weight in terms of its importance to the economy and, of course, all the associated feed through. So this is certainly an area we're watching. Now, if you wanted a positive data point, the housing stock, meaning the housing inventory, it's actually so low that we could certainly take a lot of the demand off of the table via higher interest rates, higher mortgage rates, and still have a relatively healthy housing market. Now, Again, the concern is that this is just a very psychological area for consumers since it's our biggest asset. There's obviously a ton of leverage in a house purchase. So mortgage rates going up you know, 200 basis points from, say, 3% to 5%, it means a lot more when you do the math on affordability compared to, to 30-year mortgage rates going from 5% to, to 7%. So look, you know, best case is the housing prices sort of largely level off for a few years, but I do think that mortgage rates can't go a whole lot higher from here without some, some level of harm to consumer psychology. Now, I think that's a great point. And one other question I want to ask you on this, because I hear this a lot from some of our clients, is, is a question of, of whether we're heading into a bubble like we had in 2006, 2007. You know, I want to get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so a bubble perspective, um, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting. We did a, a podcast together you know, a year ago or so talking about bubbles in various asset classes. And I think a lot of those, I'll call them niche asset classes, the bubble has been slowly released. The biggest bubble that you could argue about was the fixed income market. And, and that had been one building for years. And you know, most strategists got that wrong every year by calling for higher interest rates for five or seven or sometimes 10 years. And then all the higher interest rates finally happened. And so if you could somehow have you know, avoided the biggest bubble, which is effectively in treasuries, and some argue a bit more from here, but I think the yields are back now to the levels where we can say they're somewhat close to stable. Hopefully, you know, if we see yields go do a, do a doubling from here, uh, we do have real problems. But if you argue that some of the steam has been let out of the, the treasury market and interest rates in general, then combined with all the niche asset classes, there has been a lot of steam taken out of a lot of those bubbles that, that uh, we discussed a year ago. Yeah, well, no, I, that's helpful perspective. And Jason, I kind of want to broaden out the conversation now too, from just looking at the US to other asset classes, since you do invest both globally and, and, and across the asset class spectrum. So the inflationary drivers in the US and overseas, I would argue have been quite different, where the US is maybe more rooted in wages and strong demand, while overseas, you're seeing much more of a supply problem with labor starting to creep into the equation. You know, international markets, given what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and some of the economic issues have held up fairly well year to date, actually. Do you think there's room from international developed and or emerging markets to fall further? Or do you think we've seen the worst? And then if inflation accelerates overseas, how would that impact your investment outlook? 
Right. And, and from a return perspective, by the way, if you believe it all in, in uh, mean reversion, you'd think it's time for international stocks to start pulling their weight since we've basically had 15 years of, of U.S. outperformance versus the rest of the world as a basket. So for last year as a whole, 2021 offered the biggest disparity in performance in the history of the MSCI Acqui XUS index when compared to U.S. stocks, so meaning when you compare it to the S&P 500 index. Now, anytime you have, you know, at least for us, something that's that extreme or that has never happened before, you, you have to take it into account. You have to pay attention to it when constructing portfolios. And of course, right on cue, you know, as you mentioned, international stocks were outperforming domestic stocks pretty noticeably at the beginning of, of 2022, right up until the war in late February. And then things turned, which makes sense given war is, is right on Europe's doorstep. So it uh, depends on your time frame. On a year-to-date basis, international looks like it's holding up fine. But since February, the U.S. Is, has pretty meaningfully outperformed. But in terms of economic outlook you know, from here, I, I think your summary is accurate. It looks like U.S. inflation is stickier because it's tied to demand, because it's tied to wage inflation. And you can see that in the central bank activity. You can see that in the dollar's performance. The U.S. Fed is tightening probably a bit more than the U.K. And, and we know emerging market central banks are probably closer to going the other direction since they got their tightening out of the way over the past year. So there's certainly inflation overseas, there's inflation globally, but in developed markets at least, they don't they don't have this element of overheated demand to deal with like we have in the US. No, I think that's great perspective, Jason. And you know, you'd mentioned the dollar as well. And and the dollar is basically at or near its highest level since March of 2020 at the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. Do you see that as a problem going forward, especially for U.S. companies with with international revenue exposure? When do you think that really starts to bite into earnings or, or will it significantly bite into earnings? The U.S. dollar, it's both a plus and a minus. On the surface, you know, the argument is that a stronger dollar makes it tougher for exporters to compete. You know, they have to sell their finished products and, and that the U.S. US goods are more expensive because the dollar is more expensive. And by the way, that's, that's China's argument and how they manage their currency because manufacturing and exporter, exporting is such an important part of the Chinese economy. Now, on the other hand, if you're a company that imports a lot of raw materials to create your final goods, then a stronger dollar makes those raw materials cheaper and you can buy more of them, right? So I think a stronger dollar is a factor, but you know, it's not one that U.S. companies can't overcome. I think uh, you know, the bigger factors are labor, market, labor costs and borrowing costs. Those are probably bigger issues for, for multinational S&P 500 companies. And that's, of course, where all roads lead back to the Fed. Now, the dollar matters for emerging market investors, particularly country by country, based on terms of trade and based on those countries' debt exposures, which boils down to effectively commodity exporters versus commodity importers. But on the whole, despite the dollar near 20-year highs and all the headlines, the dollar is one of those safe haven assets, especially during geopolitical events. So I think it's hard to see how the dollar falls dramatically from here, certainly if the Fed um, stays hawkish and inflation is a bit stickier than we think. Yeah. And Jason, you know, you mentioned emerging markets. I do want to quickly touch on that because given where the dollar is, they're feeling inflation as well, uh, especially given supply chain issues and, and their sensitivity to energy markets. Uh, what's your outlook for, for emerging markets going forward? Is it investable right now or is it something that, that you'd rather sit on the sidelines and wait and see? So we have uh, had minimal exposure to emerging markets for some time. Um, it, all, it depends on, on what you're considering. We always 
view. Again, when you're constructing portfolios and uh, putting together portfolios the way in which we do it, and we're looking at volatility, you have to know that emerging markets as an asset class is one of those higher volatility asset classes. So what does that mean for us? It means that when you're including it as an asset class in portfolios, we tend to look at it as a basket. Um, rather than owning individual countries. So if you look at it as a basket, you get some of the diversification and you can own the basket as a whole. Of course, we know that, that China is the overwhelming portion of that basket. With a, you know, a negative view on China, there's just too many headwinds. The real estate bubble there feels very Florida circuit 2005 to me. You know, and then you throw in COVID and the supply chain and everything else. It's just been an area that you've had to avoid. Now, there's been pockets of emerging markets that have performed quite well. But as a basket, it's been a struggle for them for a number of years at this point. Right. And Jason, I want to bring all of this together now. So as we look forward, and as you mentioned volatility, you're a manager with downside risk mitigation at, at its core ethos. So given what we have seen with respect to downside so far this year, and bearish sentiment at the highest levels really since the global financial crisis or even before, where do you see markets finishing the second half of 2022 and going into 23? Yeah, so look, we think, you know, again, it depends on if you're in a recession or you're headed towards a recession or you can push a recession out a bit longer. And that depends on a number of things going our way. But if we're not yet headed towards a recession, which I think is the ultimate conclusion of all this, it's just timing, uh, then the, the market bottom, it feels like you're getting down towards market bottoms and, you know, maybe there's some upturn from here. I don't think, again, I don't think we get in, in the green by the end of the year, but I think that, you know, just given the market volatility, the market's trying to carve out a bottom here, right? And you can look at volatility levels haven't really spiked. There's a lot of other sentiment indicators. And then the question becomes what types of asset classes are attractive in a year in which, you know, bonds are down double digits and a lot of equities are down double digits. And that's where it's very tough to find those non-correlated assets. So a couple of areas we've looked at. Um, you know, gold, I think it's proven its case against Bitcoin. We've been researching other inflation protected assets, you know, agricultural related equities, just as an example, the energy sector, which probably won't see a ton of capital investment. And then another area where, you know, there, there are plenty of different and popular choices in the ETF market is dividend payers. A little bit different because usually when interest rates rise, dividend stocks aren't great performers. But Again, we're in a different environment today. Out of the last 40 years, interest rate rises typically happen during boom times. And this time around, we have interest rates rising in a slowing economic environment. So I think investors are choosing some of the safety of large caps and taking that dividend while they wait. And then finally, you know, cash. There's some argument whether cash is trash or cash is king. With uh, 8% CPI inflation, as we open up the podcast, I think we're starting to feel a little bit better about perhaps putting some of that cash into shorter term treasuries now that you can get some type of yield, at least from the front end of the curve. All right, Jason. Well, I think we're just about at time. So I greatly appreciate, I'm sure our listeners greatly appreciate all of your insights. It's great to have you back. So thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners. And until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors. Please find additional episodes and market insights at marketsinfocuspodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Matt Orton.
podcasts are for informational purposes only. This channel is not monitored by Carillon Tower Advisors. Please visit marketsandfocuspodcast.com for additional disclosure. This material is a general communication being provided for information purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from Carillon Tower Advisors or any of its affiliates to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and you should not rely on it in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and make their own determinations together with their own professionals in those fields. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. Past performance does not guarantee or indicate future results. There is no guarantee that these investment strategies will work under all market conditions, and each investor should evaluate their ability to invest for the long term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. Investing involves risk and may incur a profit or loss. Investment returns and principal value will fluctuate so that an investor's portfolio, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss.